0: Welcome to the Ortho Eval Pal podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now, for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello, everyone, and
1: welcome to episode 246 of the Ortho Eval Pal podcast. Today, we're going to be bringing you our most popular podcast episode that we have done so far, which was episode 131, which was a interview with Dr. Jessica Aronowitz, where we discussed rotator cuff injuries. To this date, we are now up to well over 360,000 downloads with OrthoEvalPal. We continue to rank number one in orthopedic podcasts, and I really could not do this without you. So thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Take care.
0: This episode is sponsored by MedBridge. Harnessing the power of technology to help you advance your career and improve patient outcomes, MedBridge delivers over 2,000 evidence-based CE courses and more than 7,000 specialized patient exercises available whenever you need them from wherever you are. MedBridge goes beyond CEUs. They're leading the space. From interactive webinars led by top industry leaders to the first-ever HEP patient mobile app, MedBridge has taken learning to the next level For over 200,000 PTs, OTs, ATs, SLPs, and nurses, and those they serve. For a limited time, use promo code OEP to receive $175 off your annual subscription. At MedCore Professionals, we offer mobility aids, bracing and supports, compression garments, post-mastectomy care, and much more.
2: Your health and well-being are important to us. Your recovery is our priority.
0: Our certified team will guide you to the right products based on your medical needs, recent procedures, or mobility restrictions.
2: Visit us on Route 1 in Scarborough or at MedcorePro.com. We are Mark and Kelly Hassett, owners of MedCore.
0: And we keep you moving forward.
1: Welcome back. For those of you who have followed me uh, from the beginning, you may have remembered when I did an interview with Dr. Aronowitz about total shoulder arthroplasty. It was exactly 100 episodes ago today. So, this is pretty cool. I am totally thrilled to have her back on the show. And um, Dr. Aronowitz is a board certified orthopedic surgeon at Eastern Maine Medical Center's orthopedic surgical specialist. She specializes in shoulder and elbow surgery. Her clinical interests include shoulder arthroplasty. Rotator cuff tears and distal bicep tendon injuries. A native Floridian, Dr. Ronowitz obtained her undergraduate degree from Wellesley College. She earned her medical doctorate from the University of Florida and completed her orthopedic surgery residency at the University of Miami. She then completed a one year fellowship in shoulder and elbow surgery at the world renowned Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, under the direction of leading experts in the field. She has presented her research at national meetings and has published and has published several peer-reviewed journals. Dr. Aronowitz has been practicing in Bangor, Maine for seven years and has established herself as a regional expert in shoulder disorders. Last year, she performed over 150 shoulder replacements and over 300 arthroscopic rotator cuff repairs. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Aronowitz. Thank you very much. Certainly doesn't seem like it's been a whole hundred episodes ago. I bet. It's crazy (laughs) how fast things go by. Um, So, you know, we're in the middle of this coronavirus situation, and obviously everything has changed in the way that we, you know, we manage our patients. Um, How have you had to adapt what you're doing in regards to, you know, surgery and things like that? And how are you going to prioritize your schedule once you get back at it after the dust settles?
2: Yeah, well, we've uh, very quickly adapted to some telemedicine, which has actually been really effective. Um, I'm able to, see patients in in their home and do a a limited exam a lot of these patients have already had imaging that i'm able to review and then review with them Um, it obviously doesn't come close to an office exam but it's what we have for now and i think it's it it, we're really doing a nice job with that Uh, at my hospital at eastern maine medical center we're not doing any elective surgery and although and we'll get to this later, but although there can be some urgency in regards to fixing a rotator cuff, it by no means is an emergency. Um, and I think when we are back up and running, those patients will get prioritized over uh, patients that maybe have more long standing issues, arthritis, uh, and so they'll, get, they'll hopefully get to the, the front of the line for surgery.
1: Yeah, great, great. Yes, definitely some challenging times, but I think, you know, we're going to learn a lot from this. And uh, I think that we're going to carry a lot of this over into, you know, care for our patients later, especially, you know, we work in, uh, you're in Bangor, but you see a lot of patients in rural areas, and it can sometimes be very challenging to to get to you. And I think that this may be something that we look at in the future that can be helpful for uh, all parties involved.
2: No, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've done uh, we've done a few lectures together. We've done some podcasting together, and I really appreciate you taking the time to help me out with my live lectures. Um, We have so much to talk about today. And what I'd like to do is hit a few topics that I hope will be fruitful to our listeners um, for, you know, everybody from mid-level providers, uh, you know, OTs, PTs and assistants and, uh, you know, family nurse practitioners and, and PAs. And, and we'll just kind of get to some of the meat and potatoes of, of some of this stuff. Um, so let's start off with uh, just a few commonalities that we see in certain patients. From your experience, what's the most common age range that you see with people who have rotator cuff tears? And do uh, you see more males than females? Are there,
2: is there a certain population that you see more than, than not? Right. So I think the, the first thing is that rotator cuff disorders tend to be a problem as we get older. And we know in the literature that over half of people over the age of 60 may have a rotator cuffed hair, whether it's symptomatic or not. So even in the, the population that doesn't have any shoulder pain, there's a certain percentage that if you got an MRI and a normal feeling shoulder, they would, they would have a rotator cuffed hair. Um, and so, you know, that in terms of the prevalence or the age demographic, it is uncommon to have a rotator cuff tear in your 30s and even in in your 40s. It is not uncommon in your 70s and 80s. So, I mean, that's that's one part of it. Um, I think I probably fix more in men. I don't know if that's really borne out in the literature. Uh, And I also think that there's two different ways to, you know, two different approaches with regards to rotator cuffs the degenerative kind and the traumatic kind, and those are viewed differently and the approach to treatment is different. So the degenerative kind is someone who's in their late 60s and they just started having shoulder pain and they don't know why and it hasn't gotten any better and maybe they have type two diabetes, maybe they're a former smoker, those are all risk factors and they have a rotator cuff tear and that's a lot different than a 55 year old or a 45 year old who falls off a ladder, um, slips on the ice, and has a rotator cuff tear. So those are kind of the two classes, the traumatic versus the the degenerative.
1: Sure, sure, great, thanks. Um, You know, All patients uh, and tears are different. Would you say that there are common signs and symptoms when a patient walks into your office and are there certain presentations that you see that are common with people with rotator cuff tears? Because it can be very, very difficult to identify sometimes in the clinic if a person has a tear or maybe a tendonitis and I've put up plenty of videos on YouTube where people cannot lift their arm whatsoever, um, mm-hmm. but they, all they have is inflammation. They don't even have a cuff tear or, or any tear of any sort. Yeah. Um, any, any common things that you see when they walk into the clinic?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a really good point that you make, Paul, that there, there are some things that mask as something else or that there is overlap. But I think the things that I hear from my patients the most um, is that it bothers them at night and or wakes them up from sleep they localize the pain to the lateral part of the shoulder. So it's if they, they grab their shoulder with the other hand and very reliably grab right around the deltoid. And and as you know, that's because in the subdeltoid space is where subacromial bursitis and any inflammation is going to accumulate. Um, and then the other thing is, well, when I'm just sitting here, it doesn't bother me, but as soon as I go to reach for something or lift for something, it bothers me. So I think, and, and certainly you can see all of those things with tendinitis and impingement. But those are really classic findings for rotator cuff tear pathology. So there's that. And then there's the weakness part where they, they notice specific weakness, especially in the plane of abduction or overhead motion where someone with impingement per se, you know, has pain, but they're like, you know, I'm still able to lift and do the things I want to do. It just really hurts. Um, you can see that with a rotator cuff tear. But, you know, a lot of times weakness is a component of, of having a tear.
1: Right, yeah. Uh, you and I evaluated a gentleman yesterday who uh, we suspect has a rotator cuff tear, and uh, and I really like one of the points that you brought up with him, which um, I don't use very often, but I'm definitely going to start asking now, is this gentleman had previously torn his other rotator cuff, and you had asked him, you know, when you hurt this one, did it feel like the other side? And yeah. it is amazing at how many people will say, they'll come into the clinic and say, I just tore my rotator cuff. I'll say, well, did you have an MRI? Did you see a surgeon? Did you see somebody? They'll say, nope, I had one on the other side. It felt exactly the same way. I think that was a great point that you brought up. And uh, definitely, uh, the patients know, they just know.
2: Yeah, they know. Um, And I've I've learned that actually just from talking to my patients over the years and, you know, asking them and they, yeah, they know it's, uh, I, I fortunately haven't had a rotator cuff problem, but um, I, I think that, when, when it happens, they know when it's in the contralateral side.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's usually pretty traumatic. Um, I assume you x-ray a lot of your patients, a lot of your shoulder patients. Um, you know, can you tell us what you're looking for with certain types of patients and, and what is relevant in an x-ray? Because sometimes we get these x-ray reports back and it might tell us something, but it, it may not say this patient has a rotator cuff tear or they have this bony problem contributing to the shoulder mm-hmm. problem. What are you looking for?
2: Right. So first of all, one, one reason that we get X-rays on pretty much any musculoskeletal complaint is to make sure there's nothing um, like a tumor or some, you know, a fracture. You know, someone falls two weeks ago, they've been nursing it at home and, you know, we get an X-ray and, and lo and behold, they have a proximal humerus fracture and, you know, not a rotator cuff tear. So that's one really important reason that we, we start off with X-rays. So one thing I'm looking for is if someone had a nice, healthy shoulder before an injury is to assess the glenohumeral joint and the distance. We call it the acromiohumeral distance, so the space between the top of the proximal humerus and the undersurface of the acromion. And I use those as clues to tell me that, okay from the alignment perspective, this is a nice healthy shoulder. Sure, I can't tell on the x-ray if the rotator cuff is torn, but this at least tells me that that the other anatomy is normal. Now, we compare that normal x-ray to someone who maybe has a long-standing history of problems, or they might have an acute on chronic issue where there is proximal humeral migration, and they say, I was fine, but there's distinct narrowing of the acromial humeral interval. That gives me a sense that there's Chronicity to this, even if it's unbeknownst to the patient. And I have this conversation all the time where I say, in the background, your rotator cuff was thinning and wearing away. <clears throat> and when you slipped and fell on the ice, it was really the last straw. That's a lot different than a healthy tendon being torn from a similar mechanism. So there's that. And then finally, there's the patient where on, on, a, on a simple AP x ray, you see complete narrowing of the acromiohumeral interval. That that we begin calling rotator cuff arthropathy, an erosion of the acromion, or what we call um, acetabularization, where there's actually the ball is forming an indentation in the acromion, and that of course is a much different situation than a straightforward you know rotator cuff tear. Now now the patient is getting arthritis, um, maybe superior glenoid wear, Glenohumeral arthritis because of a rotator cuff deficient shoulder. So although sometimes X-rays don't tell us the whole story, and we, we do often need to get an MRI, I think that they are a very good starting point for a musculoskeletal evaluation. Yep, great,
1: great. Um, and, and I, I know that, that some people have AC joint arthritis or spurring yes. from the AC joint. The acromion can be hooked a little bit, and that can also be a contributing factor. But I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you that question later on, you know, sure. what do you do when you go in and, and, and have surgery on that? Um, not all patients with rotator cuff tears need to have surgery, correct?
2: Exactly. Yep. And, and
1: so what are some of the factors that help you decide, you know, who needs to have it and who doesn't? Are there a couple things that you would, that you would say, absolutely you need to have surgery. We've got to get this taken care of.
2: Right. And I actually, you know, I start most of my rotator cuff repair conversations as saying, look, this isn't black and white. This isn't, you know, this is mostly a gray area. And if you read a lot of the guidelines, there's no consensus in regards to treatment. So the one patient where I do somewhat strongly recommend surgery is in a healthy, physiologically young or active patient that has an acute traumatic full thickness tear, um, especially it involves the anterior part of the supraspinatus. And the the reason, the, the primary reason is to improve their symptoms, but, but second to that is restoring the ana- anatomy that they had presumably prior to their injury and to prevent Rotator cuff tear progression, so that you know that, that is sort of the most clearly defined in my practice for the person that I would offer surgery to in terms of having a rotator cuff tear. Then you know you get into the patients that have failed non-operative treatment, and so I think that's the next conversation is well, they've had four to six months of pain, they've had three months of therapy, they've tried a course of anti-inflammatories or over-the-counter pain modalities, their symptoms are getting worse. And they you know they're really having a hard time uh you know then it's then it's a, a surgical conversation i think if someone presents to me with a partial thickness tear even a, a degenerative tear that um you know they haven't had any treatment say it's been two months i i really do think there's a role for non-surgical measures and all uh, and, and the, the, the mainstay of that is therapy uh so you know that's that's kind of the full spectrum but i, I start almost every conversation by saying look if you fell and broke your hip and you go to the hospital, you're having surgery. Your rotator cuff is, is not that. And so, you know, here are all the options. And I, I, I really try to go through all of the options. And then the, the one, the interesting thing about having the conversation about rotator cuff tears is that more often than not, as surgeons, we talk a lot about the risks of surgery. And this is the, the, the one, and, and with arthritis, if patients want you know, don't want surgery. Well, so their arthritis gets a little worse. It doesn't change the fact that they'll need a shoulder replacement. If you have a rotator cuff tear and you choose not to have surgery, there is a chance of rotator cuff tear progression. I can't give exact numbers. There are some factors on the MRI that that I can uh, counsel the patient on and the size of the tear matters and that kind of thing. But I think it's important in patients who might have minimal symptoms that a smaller tear can turn into a bigger tear or a big tear can turn into something that's an irreparable tear. And and that certainly affects things down the road. I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit as well, but I do spend time talking about risks of non-operative management in, in those patients as well.
1: Sure. Sure. So I'll piggyback off of that. You know, patients come into uh, therapy and you know, we spend a lot of time with them. We do a very comprehensive evaluation and we see them three times a week. It might be an hour, hour and a half of treatment <clears throat> with them. And we, you know, it gets pretty comprehensive. Patients ask a million questions to, to us and oftentimes questions, you know, we, we don't have the answers to, but this one question comes up very often, you know, do I have to have this rotator cuff repaired now or, you know, I'm going to be retiring in six months. Can it wait till then so I can get through my work? Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, uh, the tendon retraction, the size of the tear, the integrity of the tissue and the need to, you know, do it quickly or can they wait and still have a good outcome?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I get asked that all the time too, because unfortunately in Maine, there's no great time to have your rotator cuff fixed and be out of commission for a while. Whether it's summer, winter, fall, people have plans all the time. Um, So we know from the literature, from you know from several studies that in the setting of an acute tear, the outcomes can be better if it's addressed within six months. Now. I personally fix a lot of tears that are further out than that and people do really well, but it makes sense. I mean, if you have a normal cuff, you fall and you rip it off. It's, you know, now the integrity can start to lessen over time. Does that happen over days? I I don't think so. Um, but the, the way I approach it is the sooner the better. It's not an emergency. If you need to, if you have big plans, travel plans, or this and that work responsibilities, take care of that, but I wouldn't necessarily, and, and this is what I say, I say, I wouldn't necessarily want to wait a year or two. And now I have the experience being in practice now for, for seven years that I've I've treated those patients that have chosen to wait a year or two, and it makes everything a lot more difficult when, when we finally get in there to fix it. Um, and so there is definitely a timeliness to it. Um, I have fixed very few, very few cuffs within a month of the injury, just by the nature of People having an injury and then getting in, you know, to their PCP and MRI and then to see me. But I think that the sooner you can restore that anatomy, the better. And I think, again, that's that traumatic tear that the, the literature supports fixing within six months. The degenerative tears, I think, are a different story. And I think, you know, and, and then the other thing is that a lot of it depends on the tissue quality on the MRI. If I'm already concerned about it and there's a lot of retraction, and the, the, the tendon is thinning, or there's some atrophy in the muscle, I'm much more inclined to tell the patients, look, I think we, we should do this sooner than later, because you're already showing signs of, of problems with the, within the, the, the context of you having a tear.
1: Right, right. Now, when people have uh, rotator cuff tears, are they at higher risk of developing degenerative arthritis of the glenohumeral joint because of those kinematics? I mean, we know that, that the rotator cuff helps to depress the humeral head when you do active flexion and abduction, which is, I think, the most important part of it. But, you know, if they have a deficient cuff at 40, 45 years old, um, if, the, if they say, you know what, I just want to live the rest of my life like this, I don't want to have this thing fixed, can we pretty well predict that these people are going to develop arthritis or not?
2: Right. I, another great question. And I, I think that I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell that patient that with certainty he is going to develop arthritis. That is the concern of leaving it the way it is. And I think that that's primarily an issue with the larger tear. So if someone has a small, you know, a small defect in their rotator cuff, I, I think that without substantial tear progression, I don't really think that that's going to cause advanced arthropathy or these extensive degenerative changes. Uh, I, you know, I do think it's, it's the concerns of the the larger or the massive tear where the balance is off in the shoulder. And then yes, that that humeral head kind of shifts more superiorly and you start getting arthritis Um, in someone who's completely asymptomatic, is that a reason to fix it? It's a, that's a tough conversation. You know, I, those are tough conversations to have because repair and and postoperatively it's painful. And so I don't really know what the right answer is, but I have that conversation with patients very specific to each individual.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that probably, you know, the amount of pain that they have and the amount of loss of function are probably the two biggest, uh, yeah. you know, contributors here in regards to making decisions on stuff like this. It seems, yeah. it seems like that's the way the patients, you know, go uh, when, we, when we see them and talk to them. But we do get a lot of patients who come in with large tears and great function yep. and not a lot of pain. And uh, we just happen to discover them while they're in the clinic. Right. Um, yeah. Yep. Interesting. Um, so, you know, there besides the rotator cuff, there are other pain generators in the shoulder. You know, the subacromial bursa and the proximal biceps um, and the AC joint when you do surgery on folks with rotator cuff tears do you clean some of this quote unquote clean some of this stuff up while you're in there prophylactically or um do you look for signs in there that would say we, we need to take care of this because it's a contributor
2: right so we'll start in order here so let's talk about the acromioclavicular joint for a second because i get asked about that a lot i will tell you that and, and this is based on experience that almost all or, or many, many patients over the age of let's say 40 have some degree of AC arthritis on their x-ray. And so they get told they have shoulder arthritis. I, I think it's, that's a whole separate category and the patients are being misled. If it's symptomatic, if they show me that they have pain over their AC joint, or if I push on that area and it reproduces pain, I have been very pleasantly surprised at the number of patients that have a horrible-looking AC joint, and I'm pushing and pushing. They're like, no, 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 that's not where my pain is. My pain is out here. So in my practice, if they do not have symptoms there, I do not treat it um, at the time of surgery. And 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 most people don't. Some people do, um, but I think that you're doing. You know, you're you're then exposing another joint that may not necessarily need to be exposed at the time of surgery. If they have any tenderness there. Um, then, then, I w- then I will address it. So that's the AC joint. In the process of me um, cleaning up everything around the rotator cuff, I do a bursectomy. Um, and then if if I feel that the acromion is contributing to the rotator cuff problem, or if it's inhibiting my ability to get a nice repair. So sometimes you actually need to resect a little bit of the acromion um, just it, for the technical aspects of surgery. But you know, there, there are some studies that show that performing an acromioplasty routinely does not necessarily affect the outcome in the setting of a rotator cuff repair. So, again, that's kind of patient-specific. The proximal biceps we continue to learn more and more about, and, uh, you know, I do believe that that can be a, a, a substantial pain generator. It's also right next to the supraspinatus. It's in between the subscap and the supraspinatus. But when our, you know, when you're trying to create a nice footprint for repair, you can get into that bicep if it's still there. And so I tell people that I might need the room there for my anchor placement. And the last thing I want to do is put an anchor and stitches right there and then have that start to rub against the biceps tendon. And and then the the patient has biceps tendon problems later. But I will tell you that, that at least two thirds of the time I get in there and there's inflammation of the biceps and this is in the setting of a rotator cuff tear, there's tendinopathy, it's thickened, it's partially torn. Um, And so you know, more often than not, I'm performing a biceps procedure. And that's either a tenotomy or a tenodesis, either an arthroscopic tenodesis, or I do a subpec uh, with a two-centimeter incision in the axillary crease. Um, and a lot of that is also pathology-dependent, patient-dependent. But I think that the, the biceps tendon has, has really evolved into us understanding it as a, as a pain generator. Um, so I think that's a very common part of having a shoulder procedure at this point.
1: Yeah, I never realized it was such a pain generator until you know after seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients yeah. with rotator cuff tears, and they come in, they have this bicipital discomfort, and I, I consider it biceps tendonitis. You know, when you go down the groove a little bit, it gets into the muscular tendonous junction. Yeah. And they come in, they did something stupid on the weekend, and they're like there was a big pop and there was bruising. You know, they they blew the tendon the rest of the way, and yeah. um, they feel like a million bucks. Yeah, um, it's just amazing, and uh, and so I, I, that's when I've really realized that. You know, this really does cause a lot of discomfort. You know, concomitantly with the rotator cuff issues that they're having.
2: Yeah, and, no. I, and I, you know, the the
1: long head of the biceps is also a humeral head depressor, uh, and so along with the rotator cuff, they have to work together. So they kind of uh, you know fit you know side by side, and uh, I think they both contribute. Um, so you know, we we see a lot of patients kind of prehab, we, we, we may be treating them, they come in, they have a rotator cuff tear, they're waiting to do, get the MRI, they're waiting to have surgery and they're in therapy. And I'm a big prehab guy, obviously I'm a therapist and I think that having good mobility, good capsular mobility is important and getting all the surrounding muscles uh, strong is important uh, also in periscapular strength and posture and all that stuff. Um, but I think more importantly, it, it's a matter of patient comfort because we've seen some of the studies where patients have surgery, rotator cuff surgery, and they have difficulty after. Oftentimes because they just don't have the confidence because it's a really, it's it's a high risk therapy procedure to do afterwards because it's so easy to re-tear. And so we have to be very cautious and um, patients have to be very cautious. And so I just want to get your take on, you know, the important things that, that we should do preoperatively in regards to making patients comfortable and, and understanding stuff. And then postoperatively, you know, how should we, you know, what kinds of things do we need to be careful? of?
2: Yeah, I, I really think that your point about patients being somewhat familiar with therapy before, so they know what to expect after is, is a really great point. Um, I think for me, one of the more important things is motion. And I think if, if they can restore passive motion, now I know a lot of times it hurts to get their arm up. But if, if they have good passive motion going into surgery, the risk of stiffness following surgery is quite low. Um, And then of course, you know, the the strength and and mobility um, component to it as well. But I, I do caution patients that, you know, I don't want them to go to these extreme measures to try to, you know, get as much as they can out of it just to then have the surgery and then we shut them down in a sling and all of this stuff. Um, and so, you know, so there's that, there's a financial component as well, but I do, I do believe that, um, the better they are heading into surgery, like anything, the better they will be, um, you know, in terms of their range of motion and strength, you know, afterwards. And I think that the expectations, you know, in terms of them kind of knowing what it feels like to have someone else move their arm and push it a little bit. And I I think after surgery and, and for, you know, any therapists that are, that are listening, um, most of us are pretty specific with our our guidelines. And and one thing is that there's really no, so I don't know anyone that fixes a cuff tear and then says, yes, just move it at your discretion, active or passive right away. So I don't, I don't know, you know, anyone that does that. And I also know that there's, there, there's differing literature on whether you move it right away or not. So I think regardless of what you do at the first six weeks, so if you start early passive motion, those patients can regain more motion earlier on. But at a year, those patients compared with patients that were just in a sling for six weeks are at the same place. And so for me, if I have a solid, solid repair, if it's on on a smaller or medium size of a tear, I'll do some passive motion. But if they have frail bone or the tendon quality wasn't great, or it was a eight anchor repair, you know, I will just keep them in a sling for four to six weeks and then get going with passive motion then. And I think you know you're balancing the healing, and then the mobility. And I think if I had to pick one, I would choose healing and a little bit of stiffness, and have them work through the stiffness later. Yes. But have a healed rotator cuff repair.
1: I I agree with you. I definitely agree with you on that one. You've you and I have had conversations about this, and I I think patients it, it can be individual with certain patients. You know I have a strong belief that people with Dupuytren's contractures have a high incidence of adhesive capsulitis, and that if you recognize that before surgery, maybe those are the types of people that we want to get them moving passively a little bit faster so we don't have a disaster way down the road. Uh, but I totally agree with you. I think that a good integrity of the rotator cuff is important and uh, first, and then we can gain motion later. And um, as you and I have talked about, and this was really funny, first time uh, Dr. Aronowitz ever uh, presented for me, we never had seen each other's presentations. But I use the term, you know, wet toilet paper as, you know, to try to compare a, a poor quality rotator tough integrity, and and Dr. Ro, Dr. Ronowitz came up, did her presentation, and used exactly the same terminology <laughs> while talking about poor, you know, tissue integrity. And so, you know, if we have a situation like that, that's where it's very important for the surgeon and the therapist to be talking to each other. Or there's some indication that you know this was a very tenuous repair; it was difficult, or it was very retracted, or whatever, whatever it is. That. As a therapist, I really look at that seriously, and I slow that person down, and I really look at the tissue that was repaired so that we're not stressing that. The other thing I want to mention is there was a recent study that was done um, where they did EMGs around the shoulder, and they had people do certain activities like take a sling off and put a sling on and take the shirt off and put the shirt back on while in a sling, and they found that those were the two activities that increased rotator cuff activity Mm -hmm. the most. Um, so I think that's very important that we teach people how to do these things appropriately and safely, and we have them review that before surgery. And then really early on after surgery, we review that again, and then maybe we give them some time off till they start their actual therapy. Uh, but that post-operative period where you know patients don't get guidance like they do with total hips and total knees, where they have a therapist every day from the day of surgery till the day they start outpatient therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, rotator cuff patients, they, they go home, they have their sling. They really have no instruction on that, so I think that that's important that we really fine-tune that so they don't re-injure themselves just doing something like changing a shirt.
2: Right, agreed.
1: Um, All right, so uh, you know obviously rotator cuff surgery is painful. It's very, very painful and it's one of those things that you know patients just dread if they've already had one before. Are there, you know, in in the light of all the patients who have had issues with, you know, narcotic medication and being addicted to stuff afterwards, do you have a a prescription or a, you know, a a process that you use with medication afterward that seems to work well uh, with patients? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Another another great question. So again, this is a a patient-specific issue as well. Um, We have all of us across the board with everything have moved away not entirely, but move, have moved less, you know, from opioids. Um, and so we do multimodal therapy. So first, you know, most of my patients get an interscaling block before surgery that can last between 12 and 24 hours after surgery. So that is that is extremely helpful in terms of the immediate postoperative pain. Then we do a combination of Tylenol, Tylenol, um, gabapentin which is a, a, a neurologic mediator but has been shown to be quite effective in shoulder surgery we use that very limitedly for about three to five days um, an anti-inflammatory and then finally um, a, a very limited limited use of an opioid if necessary and then i mean the other thing is having a conversation with everybody that, y- that you cannot expect to go through this without any pain your the goal is not to get you to a pain level of zero on post-operative day two. And so if, if people, <clears throat> you know, if you set that expectation and people understand that, and that this is a different type of pain that then goes away, um, you know, the goal is to use the, the least amount of narcotics possible for the least amount of time. So we, and, and you know, ba- based on all the data and then current guidelines, I mean, we really are restricting the number of pills that, that people are prescribing. And I think that that has done much more good than, than harm across the board.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Whatever you guys are doing uh, has been awesome. I, I really yeah. have seen a big difference in the last couple of years Yeah, in regards right. to that. And, uh, you know, we're not having <clears throat> patients just, you know, looking for for that past yeah. relief. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said expectation. If we tell them ahead of time, this is going to be a painful procedure. And you know what? If you come out of it and it's not painful, hey, that's bonus. That's icing yeah. on the cake. Exactly. But it is going to be painful. I think if they understand that, then, then they're going to be fine with it. Yeah. Um, so I know you're, you know, you're, you're a surgeon, and you're chomping at the bit to talk about surgery here a little bit. In a nutshell, can you tell us what a patient goes through if they were to have, like, let's say, a, a supraspinatus full thickness, supraspinatus full thickness, infraspinatus repair? Like, from the time they get into the operating room to the time they go out, five seconds. Can you? give it to us. Yeah, and
2: I actually, I have a nice demo of this on my website, which is just bangorshoulder.com. Okay. Uh, there's a, a link to two videos, kind of a before and after. But in essence, if the way I describe it is almost like a thick sheet. So if you can imagine, like the comforter on your bed is pulled off. I'm trying to make the bed and then, and then seal it down with the stitches and and reduce that 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 mat, the comforter right over the mattress where it belongs, and I'm able to do that arthroscopically through little incisions around the shoulder. Um, it's it's a really nice technique to be able to visualize everything, um, and I do that with anchors that kind of look like wall anchors. That's the best analogy I have with heavy duty stitches loaded through, and then I weave those stitches through the tendon, and then secure those stitches to a, an additional row of anchors. That's called a double row repair. That's sort of the standard um, repair for an average size rotator cuff. Sometimes smaller tears, can, can we can just do a single anchor, but it's the same concept of sewing stitches through the tendon and then anchoring it with um, a, a, a biocomposite uh, medical-grade plastic, obviously, that actually resorbs into the bone over time.
1: And these folks, uh, this is pretty much a one-day surgery, correct?
2: Yes, almost all of these, it, it, they, they're outpatient surgeries, Um, you know, I do multiple, you know, surgeries like this uh, on my operating room days and people go home and they do very well.
1: Yep. Great. Thanks. Um, what's the difference between a 40 year old with a massive rotator cuff tear and a 75 year old with a massive rotator cuff tear and you can't say 35 years, um, (laughs) you know, how, how would you, how would you treat these folks differently?
2: Yeah, well, I think, first off, I'd much rather be the 75-year-old than the 40-year-old. I think that the young patient with a massive tear is one of the most challenging areas, not just in my practice, but shoulder experts all over the country and the world. With the 75-year-old, depending on what the tendon looks like, our options, um, really in in a nutshell, are either to fix it, depending on the patient and the cuff, or we replace it with a reverse shoulder replacement. Um, and I, my approach is that if I feel that I can fix it and that it will heal, that is my preference. And, and I, you know, as, as many arthroplasties as I do, if the patient can keep their own bones and tendons, um, then, then great. And we, we try that in the 40 year old you know, if it's an acute tear, I've fixed a number of these in patients that age where it's a huge tear, but it's, it's traumatic. They're much less likely to have a degenerative cuff tear just because of their age. Um, But these are the patients I've had falls off ladders, falls off decks, um, you know, snowmobile injuries and, and get, you get in there and you're able to get a great repair. The the challenges in those patients where the the tendon quality isn't great or um, it's not really a repairable tendon. And that's a whole separate issue that we could talk a lot about. There are some options that have been much more recent, including using grafts, uh, tendon transfers, um, things like that. And um, again, that's, this is an evolving area for, for shoulder experts. um, And, you know, it does, it does represent a a challenge because I think that it it can be a problem long-term. And again, if you're 75, it's not as much of an ordeal as if you're 40 or 45.
1: Right, right. Dr. Ronowitz is there anything that you feel our listeners should know in regards to things that we might have missed today I mean we could have a conversation we could have long conversations about yeah. locator cups uh, we've had them before uh, is there anything that that you find to be very important between you know the therapist and the surgeon things that you that you want us to know um, because you do great work you want those patients to do well afterwards and we feed off of each other you do great work we try to take care of those patients and get them yeah. back functionally um, any, any suggestions?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I would like to emphasize is that there's no one set path for a patient following recovery of, of a, from a rotator cuff repair. So I have a lot of patients that call and they say their therapist thinks they're not where they're at with range of motion. And now they're concerned or they are having so much pain at 10 weeks following surgery, they think they should have an MRI. And I, I would just caution strong statements like that. Again, I don't, I don't really, you know, there, there isn't a set range of motion that someone should come back at six weeks and, and have Um, even at three months. I mean, there are people that get stiff. There are people that have great motion right away and everything in between. And I really emphasize that this takes six months to a full year for recovery. And so anything before that, I, I, I think is par for the course I mean it, 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 you know, unless they've had a really bad in, re-injury like they they fell or you know something happened I think that and even a lot of times people find that once they're out of the sling <clears throat> their shoulder hurts a little bit more they're activating those muscles that have been resting they're probably <clears throat> doing a little bit more and and so that's okay but we get some phone calls that you know now it's two months and, and they're having more pain than they did at two weeks well they're, they're doing a little bit more. They're, the expectations on their shoulder is more. So I think that, again, there are some people that, um, some surgeons that choose not to move right away and you know, start passive motion right away. And I think the, the take home is that it, it really takes a long time to recover from these. And patients are different. And there are some patients that have risk factors for stiffness. Even if they have some stiffness early on, I try not to get too concerned about that. Just keep working with them trying not to exacerbate any, any pain or inflammation. Um, but I think that there are just so many roads that patients get to take to get to the same place in the end.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I think, uh, you know, as far as therapists go, for those of you who are therapists out there, um, it's important to know your anatomy. It's important to understand what tissues were, were repaired. And that oftentimes we may get, and this happens, we get an order that says a rotator cuff repair. Physical therapy evaluate and treat, or OT evaluate and treat. Right. Um, you know, a, having a, an infraspinatus repair is very different in regards to the rehab compared to a supraspinatus repair. And I'm, I'm sorry, a, a subscapularis repair. Yeah. You know, so we want to avoid certain motions. So understanding that anatomy and understanding selective tissue tension, what tensions it, when do you stretch it, and um, when do you contract it, and how to avoid those things that, that can cause re-injury to the tissue. No, exactly. Well, Dr. Aronowitz, it's been a great episode again. Thank you so much. I mean, you've you've, you've given us such great uh, information. I really appreciate you coming back on the show.
2: No, thank you for having me, Paul. It's great. Yeah, and
1: I, you know, I, I think we, we, we talked about this recently. We were gonna we we're gonna talk about biceps injuries and things like that on this episode, and uh, we just decided, you know, there's so much to talk about with rotator cuffs. there's yeah. so much to talk about with biceps, and so maybe in the near future we uh, we chat about you know bicep injuries, proximal yeah. versus distal, and and those types of things. But again, I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, and uh, speaking to us.
2: No, thank you, thank you, Paul. I appreciate the
1: invitation, really. All right. And uh, just a reminder uh, for everybody out there listening uh, to take a peek at the show notes. Uh, we have lots of links, you know, with so much more content from Pal. I've been putting up a lot of stuff, lots of new videos recently. And and for those of you who've been following the podcast show, I've been breaking down the rotator cuff. We've talked about the supraspinatus alone, the infraspinatus alone. We've talked about the subscapularis, innervations, you know, actions and, and all of these things. So if you have not um, listen to those make sure you go back to those we go we just go back to the basics it's going to really help you with the rehab of your patients after surgery um you know and, and go to the links we have uh, all of our uh, sponsored products and discount codes in the links and uh and ways to get in touch with us if questions for dr aronowitz um just send them to me i'll run them by her and then we'll get back to you don't forget to send us questions for the show I'll be more than happy to try to answer them and uh, get those uh, answers for you uh, but uh, again Thank you all so much for listening. Please stay safe and take care.
0: We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.